Thank you for tuning in today at Propel Church. Whether you're watching through YouTube or listening through a podcast, we want to say thank you. Our hope at Propel is that you would be propelled into an authentic relationship with Jesus. From wherever you are tuning in, we hope that you are encouraged and inspired by this week's message. I'm super excited to open God's Word with you today. We are wrapping up a message series called Don't Quit the Dip. And the whole premise of this series has been to help you and I understand that there's going to be some times in our lives where we hit low points. You ever been there? Oh, 1030. <laughs> now, 9 a.m. has been outpacing you the last couple weeks. I'm just telling you. And there's about half of them. So y'all, y'all need to pick it up. So this morning, have you ever been in a low spot in your life? Yeah, me too. And, uh, and so what this series has been designed to help us with is to really learn how to keep going when times get difficult, how to keep moving forward. And we've been walking through the book of Nehemiah. Now, we're not going to make it through all of the book of Nehemiah. In fact, we're going to stop the series after today. I would encourage you to keep on reading. But if you haven't been with us for this message series, Nehemiah in chapter 1 becomes aware that the walls of Jerusalem have been torn down. They've been torn down for about 120 years. And this struggle that Nehemiah is going through is he has a heart and a passion to rebuild the wall. So he first begins in prayer. And after that prayer, he then goes to his employer and he asks for some time off to go rebuild the wall. And his king at the time says, yeah, you can go, but also he pays for the entire thing. So then Nehemiah builds a team, and they begin to rebuild the wall. But last week, we talked about the fact that they encountered some haters along the way. And then this week, we're going to talk about what to do. I really felt like what I was supposed to do in wrapping up this series is help you and I get battle ready. Turn to somebody and say, battle ready. I think we live in a world where a lot of believers are not battle ready. We're so focused on everything that's going on in the world around us that we are missing out on what's really taking place in the bigger picture. And let me be very clear. This is not a conspiracy theory message. In fact, I think some of y'all need to slow down, right, and get off Facebook, right? You need to talk to 1G. It's called God, not Google, right? If you, I'm just saying, you'd be a whole lot better off. But this is not a conspiracy theory message. It's a biblical reality one. And I want all of us to realize and understand that you're in a battle. It's a spiritual battle. And what the enemy wants to do is destroy the plans that God has for your life. And so if you and I can get battle ready, we can really begin to experience all that God has for us. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 4. If you don't, it's going to be on the screen beside me. It says this in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7. It says, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. If you want to know the tactics of the enemy, it's this right here. He wants to throw you into confusion. Satan's goal is not to give you a flat tire. It's to wreck your life. And one of the primary ways he does that is he gets you so confused about what God is doing in you or what God is doing in the world around you that you begin to fight the wrong battle. 
So what the enemy does is he not only has a plan to come against you, but he tries to throw you into confusion. He's been running this same place since Genesis chapter three, when he shows up onto the scene and he doesn't tell Eve anything. He proposes a question that causes confusion and that confusion led her into sin. I think sometimes the enemy's still running this same play where he proposes the question to all of us. Well, did God really say that? Like, hey, I know, I know that, that God says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, but I don't think Jesus had Facebook and he doesn't know <laughs> what these people are posting. Did God really say that? Or, or here's one that's really popular in the world we live in today. Is that really what God meant when he said that? And we'll twist and manipulate scripture to fit our own agenda, but don't buy into it. The enemy wants to cause you to go into confusion. But the first thing that Nehemiah does, it's been a theme throughout this entire book, is it says, but we prayed. We didn't go at our enemy's throat. We didn't first acknowledge them. The first thing we did is we turned to God because we realized that the battle we were going through was bigger than what we could handle on our own. So it says we prayed to God and then we guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired and there's so much rubble to be moved and we will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. Meanwhile, the enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we'll swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. That's the enemy's goal, is to end the work that God is trying to do through your life. The Jews who lived near the enemy camp came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. What Nehemiah is experiencing is an attack against the work that God is trying to do. But I think one of the things he does in the very beginning is what I want you to write down today is that you need to recognize that you're in a battle. If you don't first recognize that you're in a battle, you can never have victory in a fight you don't even know you're fighting. So for you and I to have victory in the spiritual warfare that we're facing and going through, we've got to first acknowledge the fact that there is a real battle taking place in our lives. And I think sometimes as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we come into a church and we go out into our world and we don't recognize the fact that there is a full-fledged attack going on in our world. And it's not going to be the attack you think it is. When Nehemiah had opposition, the first thing he does is he prays, then he protects, and then he prepares. Nehemiah gets ready for the battle that's coming, but he first has to acknowledge the fact that a battle exists. And when Paul is trying to talk to the church in Ephesus, he wants to get them battle ready as well. And so it says this in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes a final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, if you're here today and you're fighting a battle, you're facing something that's incredibly difficult and you feel like you don't have enough strength to continue, here's the best news of all. You don't have to fight in your power when you can fight in his. You don't have to have all the strength in the world. In fact, scripture will teach you and I that it's in our weakness that God's strength is made perfect. So if you feel weak today, there's good news that if you'll come to God in the middle of it, he'll show up and his strength becomes perfect in your life. 
What if the reason that you've never experienced the perfect power of God is that you were never really willing to actually be weak before him? God's powerful, and we're going to stand in his mighty power. But then Paul says to put on all of God's armor. And I don't have time today to go through Ephesians chapter 6 and give you every single little piece of the armor that Paul lays out that God has given us. But here's what I do want you to know. If you pick and choose what armor you put on every day, you will have cracks in your armor that will leave you susceptible to the attacks of the enemy. Every piece of the armor has to go on because it only works if it's all there. If you leave off the helmet, your head could roll. You know what I'm saying? That ain't good. You leave off the breastplate of righteousness and your chest has become exposed. You leave off the belt of truth and what holds everything together now is gone. You and I have to put on every single piece and when we suit up, we have to do it daily. This idea that has become popular in the American church is that you can show up on Sunday and then Monday what you did didn't matter. But if what we do on Sunday doesn't transform your Monday through Saturday, then Sunday was wasted. You're supposed to have 24-7, seven days a week faith. It's not just Sunday faith where you come in and you get all excited and then you leave and by Monday you're ready to kill everybody. That's not how God designed it. He designed it to be something that you and I would do life with him where we would get dressed for battle daily and we would put on every single piece because we recognize that we're in a battle. But this next part is incredibly important because I think the reason why many of us don't have victory in spiritual battles is because we're fighting fleshly enemies. So look at what Paul says as he's trying to encourage the church. He said, you want to put on all the armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. What does Paul, what's Paul trying to make sure we get? Your battle is not with people. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're not my enemy. Come on, all the time, here's what happens. There are people that are right in front of us and we feel obligated to fight them because the enemy is trying to create confusion in the camp. And Paul says, Church of Ephesus, as you put on all the armor of God, make sure you fight the, wrong, the right enemy and it's not people. Because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in heavenly places. What Paul wants to make sure we get is that everything we experience in the physical starts in the spiritual. So I know you've got problems going on physically, but what if I told you that the majority of the time it started spiritual? But we've been trying to get solutions in the physical, not winning the war in the spiritual. I'll give you a perfect example. Husbands, you uh, know that this is <laughs> it's true. There's times where you're having a conversation with your spouse and everything's fine. And you say something and what leaves your mouth by the time it hits her ears is something totally different. <laughs> and she'll say to you, well, you said, and you're like, When? I might be dumb sometimes. I ain't that dumb. I would never say that to you. Well, what happened? 
Tori and I call those scrambler demons. Because here's what I know. The enemy would love to thwart your marriage. He'd love to create division in your relationships. And so it's no coincidence that what I said and what she heard was two different things. Because if the enemy can destroy the image that we have of the covenant God has with his people, then he can get in the way of everything else. We need to realize that there is a spiritual battle going on, and our battle is not with people. It's against the enemy. And John 10.10 is really clear that what the enemy's goal for your life and my life is, is to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to ruin your life. And if you would fight the right enemy, you can win the battles. We've got to recognize that we're in a battle. Here, as we keep reading through Nehemiah 14, here's what we see. He says this, then as I looked over the situation, and I said this in the 9 a.m., but I think for some of you, you need to read that and circle looked over the situation. The reason why you don't have a lot of victory is because you look and read into your situation, not look over it. You need a different perspective with what you're going through because what's closest to your face determines how you see what you're facing. So I looked over the situation and I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and I said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord, who is great and glorious, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So first, we're going to recognize that we're in a battle. But second, we're going to remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. I know it sounds so simple that we would just need to, if we really want to be battle ready, recognize we're in a battle and remember the Lord, but Nehemiah felt like it was so important for the people because they were so fixated on the fact that it looked like their enemy could win. And I think what he was trying to do is say, hey, don't be afraid. Don't you remember how many times God has brought us through stuff in the past? Don't you love the fact that we serve a faithful God who has never left us or forsaken us? Man, we need to remember what the Lord has done. And I think something powerful happens when you and I stop for a moment and we take inventory on the faithfulness of God. Remember the Lord. Remember all that God has brought you through and the great things that he has done for you because as we do that, we realize that God is a God who has been faithful in all seasons. Last Sunday, uh, after our two experiences, I um, had the opportunity to go to the mountains. I was hosting a lead pastor's getaway. And this is the second one we've done. And uh, we call it a getaway. I haven't found a better name for it yet because really it's not much of a getaway. I'm not, we're not taking pastors to the mountains so that they can escape. We're taking them there so we can equip them so that when they come back, they're ready to go into their churches and into their marriages, ready to charge hell with a water pistol. I mean, like we're, that's our goal in it. And uh, just to celebrate something with you really quick, um, we, this was the second one that we've hosted. In the first one that we hosted back in March, we saw uh, one pastor tell us that he was considering taking his own life through suicide. But because of this trip, he made the decision to choose life over death. And it's incredible. Incredible. And the reason why we do that, I'll, I'll tell you, like part of my calling in, uh, over my life is not just a pastor propel church, but I felt like years ago, uh, the Lord just kind of let me in on the fact that there are plenty of pastors who look after sheep, but there's not a lot of shepherds who are looking out for other shepherds. And so I felt like it was my responsibility to be a pastor for pastors, to allow other pastors to be real and vulnerable 
and transparent. And on Sunday, as I was heading to lunch before we headed to the mountains, there was a pastor who sent me a text. He was going to be on the trip. And he said, hey, I want you to know I'm coming in hot. I said, what's going on? He said, I'm ready to leave my wife and my church. I just need to be honest with you. And I'm just here to celebrate with you today that on that trip, he made the decision to stay connected to his wife and planted in his church. And it's incredible. Incredible. God's doing some awesome stuff. And, uh, and I, love, I love what I get to do. But in that, we were driving up to the mountains. And when you get about an hour away from Asheville on I-40, you start to see uh, the mountains appear. And the mountains from far off look really small. But as you get closer and closer and closer to them, these mountains become enormous and are really, really large. And I thought, man, what a fitting thing as we're talking about remembering the Lord because over the years I've learned that proximity determines perspective. So whatever you're closest to determines how big it is in your life. And sometimes the reason why we have a hard time remembering the Lord is because we've gotten too close to our problems and not close enough to God. So what I would challenge you with is to shift your proximity because the closer you get to your Savior, the smaller your situation will become. And I just want to tell you, remember what the Lord has done in your life. So the next time, and, and sometimes you haven't experienced the faithfulness of God yet, but through his word, you can remember his track record. So the next time you end up in a doctor's office where you get a terminal illness, I want you to remember that the Lord is a great physician and a mighty healer. The next time you get stuck in depression and anxiety, I want you to remember that the Lord is your hope. When you are ready to be angry and frustrated with people, you're about to kill somebody, remember that God gives grace to those who are undeserving. You need to remember the Lord. I would tell you when you get stuck in your finances and you look, it looks like you're not going to make it financially, remember that the Lord is a great provider. And parents, I know some of y'all are so stressed about your kids and their schooling and everything that's going on. But can I tell you to remember that God loves your kids way more than you do? Remember the Lord. Nehemiah continues, and he doesn't just tell them to remember the Lord. He's going to shift them from being passive to being active. Look at this. Remember the Lord who's great and glorious and fight. I want you to do something about it. Because it's great to sit around and remember the Lord and talk about how great he is. But at the end of the day, you're still in a battle. And you got to do something. And so as we fight, what Nehemiah is doing is he's reminding them of how great God is. But he's also giving them their why. Why do we fight? For our brothers, our sons, our daughters, our wives, our homes. We fight for our families. And so husbands, I would challenge you to fight for your marriage, fight to be the leader of your home, fight the spiritual battles that you need to fight. Everyone in this room is not just a part of a, a physical family, but you're part of a spiritual family. Fight for the unity of the church, fight for the bride of Christ, fight for the things that God has deemed important, which is the people he's put you in front of. You and I need to fight. But can I just tell you, that the same excuses I hear all the time as a pastor were the same ones that Nehemiah got in Nehemiah chapter four. Did you know the people are tired? 
The work is too hard. It seems impossible. And that's what the enemy wants you to believe. For some of you, 2020 was one of those seasons where you believed that you were just too tired and the the work was too hard and that it was too difficult and it was going to be impossible. But I just came to encourage you today that one of the best things you could do is to re-enlist into God's army. That's three R's. I don't know how to do any better preaching. I'm just telling you. (laughs) Re-enlist into God's army. For every single person who is claim to be a follower of Jesus. God wants you on mission, and in doing so, he is building an army. Uh, We talk about church growth a lot, and uh, I love church growth, believe in it wholeheartedly. There's times where people say, you know, Pastor, I really love the small church, and I think that's great, but let me just tell you, you've never driven by a hospital and been mad about the size of it. I mean, like, man, they're just so big, they help so many people, I really wish they were smaller. But the church is a hospital for the broken. So we love big churches because big churches mean kingdom impact, and every number has a name, every name has a story, and every story matters to God. But can I just tell you my heart for a second? I have no desire to build an audience. I want to equip an army. I want to, come on, I want to build God's people to be ready for the spiritual battles that we're gonna face and go through in life. And for some of us, what that means is that we gotta get off the bench and get back to work building what the enemy has torn down. 2020 might have taken you out for a season, but that season is over. And you can have all the excuses in the world on why you can't get back in the game, but I'm telling you, the excuse will only satisfy the teller. You and I need to re-enlist. And Nehemiah actually gives us a good picture of what it looks like to be a part of God's army. And it says this in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 15. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans, that, uh, that God had frustrated them, we all returned to the work on the wall. You can recognize that you're in a battle, but some of us just need to get back to work. Don't spend all your time just fighting the battle the best thing you can do is keep building God's kingdom because the battle doesn't end. You just get stronger. So he says, but from then on, only half the men worked and the other half stood guard with spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. The laborers carried carried on their work with one hand, supporting their load, and with the other We're holding a weapon. I'm a visual person by nature, and so I thought, when else am I going to get the chance to pull a sword out on stage? (laughs) But this is what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah gives you and I a picture of what it looks like to rebuild what the enemy has torn down. And he says that the people, in one hand, carried on their work, and in the other carried a weapon. Now, why is that important? Because you need to fight spiritual battles and continue to build God's kingdom at the same time. You will waste your purpose and potential if you only carry one. You need to work and a sword, scripture teaches us, is the word of God. You need work and the word to make this thing happen. James teaches us that faith without works is dead. 
So I can have the sword and I can believe in faith all I want, but if I never pick up the hammer, that's not God's plan for my life. I don't really have that much faith if I'm not willing to risk it on what I work on. So what God is trying, I think the army God is raising up, is he wants people who carry a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. Now, there's people who just carry a hammer, and I'll tell you, if you only carry a hammer, what you'll end up doing is you'll try and work to earn something that can only be received by grace. Because when we just work and work and work, we're trying to be good enough and do enough things to get into heaven, and that doesn't last. The reason why you need a hammer and a sword is because the sword reveals the motivation of why we serve in the first place. And why we serve is not to earn our way into heaven, but to say, God, thank you so much for all that you've done for my life. I'm choosing to give back to you what is rightfully yours, which is my life. Because the person who put breath into your lungs is him. That's what working is. But then, man, I've met a lot of Christians who only carry a sword. Look, I'm getting ahead of myself. Look, go with me to Galatians chapter 6. I'll go back to I'll, get, I'll pick up the sword in a second. Look at what it says. It says, this, we talk about work. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. You ever felt like while you were building, you just kept looking at what everybody else was building and you got stuck in comparison? And some of us have been so fixated on what everybody else is building that we're not even carrying our own load. That's what he's saying. He says, carry your own load. You need to work. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 says, take the helmet of salvation, which is the, uh, sorry, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, I've met a lot of Christians who don't carry a hammer and just carry a sword. And the problem is when you're not building God's kingdom, what you'll end up doing if you just carry a sword is you'll use a weapon that was designed for the enemy against people because you'll think they're your enemy. So you go on Facebook and you're putting every post that you can with every Bible verse that you found to try and prove to people that they live the wrong way. You're carrying the sword. You got the sword all day, but you ain't building nothing. Nobody met Jesus through your Facebook arguments. I ain't, I'm not even kidding. Show me somebody who met Jesus through a Facebook argument, and I'll never say it again. It don't happen. You know why? Because Scripture is really clear. It's the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. We don't need to just carry the sword. We need to carry a sword to recognize that God has given us his word as a weapon against the enemy. That's what Jesus uses when he's tempted by the devil in Luke chapter four. He keeps going back to the word and back to the word, back to the word. But you know what Jesus also does? He walks out of the wilderness in Luke four and he picks up the hammer and declares that the spirit of the Lord is upon me, that he's anointed me to preach the good news, that blind will see and that captives will be released in Jesus' name. He's building. And what I'm challenging us to do today is not just be a church that's filled with people who carry a sword but never build anything. And I don't want you to be a person who tries to just 
build without the foundation of the word. Because as you build without the foundation, you'll end up doing it for the wrong reason. When you and I pick up the hammer and the sword, I think we rebuild what the enemy tore down. And what was destroyed for 120 years was rebuilt in 52 days. And there were people who carried a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. That's what God has called us to do. It's to be a church filled with people who don't just sit on the bench, but who recognize the call of God on our life. To carry his word, to fight against the enemy, to fight for our families. For some of you, that might not be a very large list from who you were blood-related with. But can I just tell you, fighting for your church family is important. Fighting for the people you do life with is important. And as we do that, what the enemy tore down gets rebuilt. So for some of you, what I'm challenging you to do today is to re-enlist in God's army. To take that next step and you say, well, what does it look like to build? Well, the easiest place to start is to get involved in the local church, to become a part of what God is building here. We'll teach you how to pick up a hammer, and it, it might be a literal hammer, but we'll teach you how to build because we believe that building an audience is not what this is about. It's about equipping an army because until every single person in Mount Pleasant and the surrounding areas knows Jesus, we're not done. God's got more in store. But for some of us, what we need to recognize is that Jesus is not the one that's in control of our life. And the first battle that God wants to deal with is the one for the winning of your own soul. Jesus Christ would come and he would live a sinless life so that he could die in your place. So that anyone who believed in him, John 3.16 says, would not perish but have everlasting life. But I love John 3, 17. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but to save the world through him. If you're here and you don't have a relationship with God, I'm here to tell you that God's desire for your life is not to judge you or beat you up for all the things you've done wrong. No, instead, God wants to save you. He wants to give you passion and purpose and set you free from every single thing you've been held captive to. But the first step in that is actually on you. It's to say, hey, Lord, I'll surrender my life. And as you do that, you make that decision. Everything begins to change. I'm not telling you it's easy, but what I am telling you is it's worth it. So with every head bowed, every eye closed around the room for just a second, I believe that there are some of you in here who you've been living for yourself. You've been living your own way and you recognize that you haven't surrendered your life to Christ. And you wanna say, hey, today that changes. If that's you for just a moment, would you lift your hand and say, hey, I need to surrender my life to Christ today. Come on, I see those. Here's what we're going to do, church. Nobody prays alone. Will you repeat this after me? Dear Jesus, today I give you my life. 
I place my hope and trust in you. Thank you for dying in my place so that I could have new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for checking out this week's message. If you made any decisions for Jesus or you need a next step or have a prayer request, let us know by going to www.propel.church/hub. That leads you to our digital connect card where you can fill out all of that information as well as see what we have coming up here at Propel. Thank you again for tuning in and we hope to see you again soon.